series through Ephesians. And I'm actually going to preach on the same verses that my mom preached on last week. Not that she did a bad job, but she did tell some um, fictional stories. No tantrum. <laughs> no. But Ephesians 1, verse 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the ones to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When the message. That's why when I heard of the solid trust you have in the Master Jesus and your outpouring of love to all the followers of Jesus, I couldn't stop thanking God for you. Every time I prayed, I'd think of you and give thanks. But I do more than thank, I ask. Ask the God of our Master, Jesus Christ, the God of glory, to make you intelligent and discerning in knowing Him personally, your eyes focused and clear, so that you can see exactly what He is calling you to do. Grasp the immensity of the glorious way of life He has for you, His followers. Oh, the utter extravagance of His work in us who trust Him. Endless energy, boundless strength. All this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from the death and set him on the throne in deep heaven, in charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments, no name and power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of it all, has the final word on everything. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his patience. Lord, I pray that you would take this word, your word to us, and make it alive. Make a letter that was written from prison to the Ephesians to bring about unity and like a new unity around where there was racial division and like economic division, and yet you brought it together into an incredible new community that you would do that again. Make it alive to us. Give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation that we would see what you are saying to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So that's obviously Paul's letter to the Ephesians or part of it, and it's his prayer. It's like we saw in the past few weeks, just how this is a letter written to try and bring unity between Jew and Gentile, and it's supposed to like remind them of what God has done. Paul, 
goes on and he says, every spiritual blessing has been given to you. Think about what God's given you. And he's given you life. He's given you forgiveness. He's chosen you. He's brought you into adoption. He's like, he's made you a new people. He's given you an inheritance. And then he starts thinking about the people that it is. And he, he's praying. And he says, I thank God for the faith that is inside of you. I thank God for the fact that your hearts have been turned. Because it, it takes faith to believe in God. Because you look around and the world is broken and your life is broken and there's, there's problems and there's challenges and there's sin and there's the consequences of sin. It doesn't take a genius to figure out that there's brokenness in the world and there's brokenness in our lives and there's brokenness in our marriage. And the problem is you and the problem is me and the problem is the sin inside of us and what we do. And yet God is saying, like, I want to give you faith to believe that this can be turned around. And I thank God and I see that faith in our community and I see that love growing. And so Paul is like, man, I, I pray every time I think of you, I'm praying and I'm thanking God for you and I'm thanking God for the love. And then he's praying that, man, but I, I pray that God would give you the spirit, not just a spirit of revelation, but the spirit, the Holy Spirit to come inside of you. You can't have faith without the Spirit already having like changed your heart and changed your life. So he's saying like, but I'm praying that you would have more of the Spirit. I'm praying that you would be filled with the Spirit. I'm praying that you would experience the Spirit, that the Spirit would open the eyes of your heart, that you would see God and know Him, that you would be transformed, that your perspective would be changed, that He would give you a heavenly perspective. And he's praying and he's praying and he's praying and he says, I pray that you would know the hope that is locked up for you like why do we need hope because if we look at the brokenness in our life and in our marriage and in our families and in our kids and in our like companies everything that is broken we need to have hope that there could actually be a transformation and a turnaround and it's like we god gives us that hope because he can transform us so that we can actually go into those situations and bring transformation, bring, be agents of change. So he gives us that hope that actually as we see what Jesus has done for us and we take it inside and we, we build our life on it, we can be transformed so we can be agents of change in every situation. So we've got that hope and then he prays that, man, that you would see the inheritance of what you have been called to. You've been called to be like transformed set apart taken out of the world but then inheritance is something you give to your kids you plan your inheritance you plan your will and you say actually i want this child to get this and i want this child to get this and this loved one to get this i have locked up and i've stored up and i've planned this perfect inheritance for each and every one of them and all through the New Testament, it talks about like inheritance and reward actually go hand in hand because it's a consequences of the life that we've lived that God has planned a perfect inheritance for us. It's not about like what we, we, we're trying to earn salvation, but we actually we live a life that glorifies God. And through that, it creates this inheritance that's perfectly locked up for you. And God wants to give you that inheritance and like open your eyes to what is available for you. So we endure like the hardness of life and we, we live a godly life and we forgive when it's hard. Not because we have to, but because of what God has called us to. Because He wants to actually draw us into more life. Because the reality is the more we act like God, even though it hurts in the moment, we become more like that. It's like 
the more, you know, it's hard to forgive. But you want to be known as a forgiving person. It's hard to be generous, but you want to be known as a generous person. It's hard sometimes to actually root, like, let go of the, the sin that's actually trying to hold us back. Because the sin is our selfishness and our greed and our pride. It's like the world has actually turned pride into, like they're trying to turn it into a positive thing. It's like pride is a terrible thing. It is sin. It's like the root of all sin. Because it's us looking at ourselves. And it's like, tonight, what, all we're going to talk about is actually our perception. That this whole prayer is a prayer from Paul to change our perception. So we would have a heavenly perception. That we would be able to look at our lives from God's perspective. So he prays us and he prays us. And I was thinking like all through the Bible you see like Moses interceding. And you've got Jesus interceding. And you've got Paul interceding. And there's something of that prayer going on. And Moses is regarded as like the, the most humble man like in the world. And ironically he probably wrote that. And I don't know how that works. But... Um, <laughs> But, but he prays for the people of God and he, he's saying like, there's a time where they come to him and say, oh, but have you heard? These guys are prophesying and these guys are, are like trying to usurp your authority and your role and your position. He's like, I wish that all of you would prophesy. I want you all to realize the gifts that are locked up inside of you. Because it's not about one person. It's not about the special like chosen few. We are all chosen. And today, like most of the illustrations, actually going to come from Kara and a, a love that she has and a passion that she has. Yeah. So, anyway, so hope and inheritance. And then he says, like, but you need to know the power, the power of the Spirit. He's prayed for the Spirit of rever wisdom and revelation, but there's also, we need to know the power that we have to actually do this. Because it's one thing having the hope and it's one thing knowing that there is an inheritance. And generally I'm stuck in between the two. I'm like, I kind of have hope and I know there should be this inheritance, but I can't do it. I don't have the energy. I don't have the strength. I don't have the ability. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. But God says, I want to give you the power, the power of the spirit, because he's going to give you the power to, to be that person, to become like God, to act more like him, to, to be strengthened so that when it's hard to forgive, when it's hard to give, when it's hard to actually live out what we know we call to, God says, actually, I want to empower you and know that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead and set him on a high above every power, every authority, that same spirit is inside of you, empowering you. That's why Jesus said, it's better for me to go away is because then my active agent, like the Spirit, which is the, the active member of the, the Trinity now. God is in heaven. Jesus is sitting at his right hand. It's like he's seated because he doesn't have to do anything more because he's won the victory. He has been enthroned. Now that active agent of the Trinity, the Spirit, is here today amongst us, empowering us. And there's something of us knowing more of the Spirit and walking closely with him. Like Jesus was empowered by the same spirit as us. Just the difference was that he walked sinlessly. So there's something of the, the, us walking, like the, the closer and more intimately we walk with God in holiness. Like I, I, I do believe we walk closer and we're more in tune with God. You can hear what he's saying to you. You are able to respond. You talk to my dad about that. He, he went and went shopping by the power of the spirit. And 
like somehow he was just the, I don't know, millionth customer or something and got his groceries paid for. By, it's like he thought he was like, caught for stealing or something because the sirens go off and it's, it's this alarm. But his groceries were paid for. But it was just this random time, a random just blessing from God. Anyway, but we are, we're talking about perspective today. Okay, who knows what that is? The Mona Lisa. So obviously painted by Leonardo da Vinci. It's valued at about a billion dollars. They can't actually value it because nobody will ever buy it or never sell it. But it's, it's insured at a time and then like by inflation, they kind of say that that's what it's worth. So everybody crams into the Louvre and specifically like one room where this is what you're going to see. No, like not even art lovers, they don't care, but you have, if you go to Paris, you have to go to the Louvre to go and get a photo of the Mona Lisa. Like, I don't know why, because you can download a better photo just on the internet, but you've got to get a photo of like, I was there, and, or maybe a selfie with it. Or, but Caro, we were talking about like just her, her love for Paris and art and she drew attention to this. This is Mona Lisa's perspective. She's looking and everybody is trying there. Look at everybody got to get their, their photo, their picture. And it's like, I was there. I saw it. I was in the Louvre and I saw the Mona Lisa, the like, supposedly best painting in the world or whatever. But Kara's perspective was, it's like she loves that painting at the back there. And nobody stares at that. Nobody looks at that. It's a picture of the wedding at Cana, supposedly, but set in Venice, which doesn't quite make sense. <laughs> so who painted that? Anybody know? This is literally like this entire wall behind like the Mona Lisa. This painting has been stolen by well, Napoleon, torn apart, reconstructed, x-rayed, restored. Like they, they tried to try and send it back, but it's like it's too big for them to take it down to send it back. So they actually ended up giving another painting back to Italy. It's painted by Paolo Veronese. Probably got that wrong. Um, but it, w it was like... When, when he painted it, he worked hand in hand with like an architect that designed the building. It's like the most famous church in Venice. And it's like at the height of Venice's success. And it's designed, it's ironically, it's a, it's a picture of a feast that was designed to be in this eating hall of this, like this famous church where they would eat in silence. So they would eat bread and water. They weren't even allowed to ask for more bread. They would have to like signal. And yet they've got a picture of like this feast. And the whole thing like provides this incredible like contrast. Because you're looking at this. And like, this is actually the artist. This is a self-portrait. He like kind of put himself into the own painting. <laughs> and all of these guys are like all the famous like painters of the time. Where he painted himself and all of his friends and... I'm almost going to make you like once you go to the Louvre and you're not going to be the person that's going to take photo of the Mona Lisa. You're going to want to look at this because this painting, the more I studied it, the more amazing it became. You have a look at this. There's 
there's multiple things that we could actually draw out of it. But firstly, the fact that it's a, it's a, it's a painting of the supposed miracle of the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. So this is the husband and wife, or the bride and groom. Um, you can see the miracle on the side there, where the water is actually being poured out, and it's becoming wine. And you look at it, and what becomes the centerpiece of this picture? You can kind of see Jesus sitting there, and it's like he's got his own light source. But the actual centerpiece is here. And the contrast that they, they draw in this, if you look very closely, like where, where they're eating here, they're actually having dessert. They're eating nuts and they're eating fruit. So they can see it's like actually it's the end of the meal. They're already having dessert. And the nuts, they say, is actually a picture of the Trinity because it has like three parts to it that it's, they're celebrating this. And there's a picture of like actually they, they're feasting, but then nobody in the picture is actually eating. Everybody's got their mouth closed. So the whole, the whole artwork is this contrast between like there's life, but there isn't life. There's, there's joy, but there isn't joy. There's dogs in the front here where one is feasting on a bone and the one is looking at the miracle. And there's this contrast between it's like the water and the wine. Some people are looking at like oh, just the ordinariness of life. And some people are looking and seeing actually there's a miracle here. And you can see like what are those guys doing in the picture there? It's after the meal, but it looks like they're actually cutting something up. And what they say is that's actually somebody cutting up a lamb. There's actually, there's a picture of a lamb. You literally, you take like the centerpiece of the image. Centers perfectly on the lamb. And you take like, there's four points here. There's the lamb, there's Jesus. There's um, an hourglass set in the middle there. And then there's the dogs. And there's a picture of like what's actually in the center of this image. And it's showing Jesus but actually, what's right at the center is a sacrificed lamb that brings the life, that brings the joy out of this. And then there's a picture of the hourglass, which is just showing like the temporality of time and just what we've got to do in this life. And then you've got the dogs. And there's this whole contrast of just actually how we look at life and our perspective and what do we look at and when do we look at it. And... So you've got this picture of like everybody staring at the Mona Lisa, but the Mona Lisa is almost staring at this picture. And Carol was saying that she was always captivated by that. She'd walk into that room and she didn't know why. Everybody's staring at like this tiny little picture of like the supposed like ultimate representation of humanity. And yet, like the Mona Lisa is staring at this, which is a, a picture of the miracle of the water turning into wine. And the water turning into wine is exactly that. It's a picture of normal life, not going the way we planned. Of like, we planned this perfect thing and then oh, we ran out of water or ran out of wine. And we have to go to Jesus and say, can you do a miracle here? Can you help us? Can you transform our lowly life? Can you transform what we are going through now and actually give us hope? Give us flavor, give us a future, give us like an answer. So for this reason, 
because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. I've heard of your faith. I can see your faith. I can see you nodding along when I say things about Jesus. But I've heard of your faith and I want to fan it into flame. I, for this reason, I want to speak to you and I want to remind you. Because I can't transform your heart. I can't change your perception. But I'm praying that God can. I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your love. I want there to be love overflowing. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. What I thank God for is this, this community and what he's doing. Because I've seen people say, actually, man, I love you. I love you guys. I've seen strangers become people that actually say, you know what, I love you. Because Jesus says, like, when we actually, when we love one another, that will testify of what God has done amongst us. That the God of our Lord Jesus, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. We want wisdom on what to do in life. We want a revelation of what, what's going to happen, what's the future hold. Like people study the book of Revelation and try and figure out all of these things. And it's like, I want to give you a revelation of Him. Because you don't need to know what's coming in the future if you know what God is like. You don't need to know how to solve the divide in the world. Like everything is trying to divide us. The world is deceived and confused. And it's like, I think it's, I don't know, like the world is like a dumpster that, is caught on fire and like there's confusion about like men and women and how we're supposed to relate and how we're supposed to look at history and how we're supposed to relate to each other and how we're supposed to think of countries and how we're supposed to think of the world and we're trying to reinterpret and like muddy the whole waters of history and trying to reinvent everything and it's just sowing more and more confusion and hurt and division and he's saying I'm praying that you would understand that what He is like, what God is like. You place Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, at the center of our lives and let everything revolve around that. We don't get distracted by this world, but actually we look up. We look at God. We look at what He is doing. Having the eyes of our heart enlightened. The eyes of our hearts. It's like your heart Apparently has eyes. But it's, I've been going through the Psalms a lot. Because the Psalms is the language of the heart. It is poetry. It is music. That's why we, we're drawn to music and worship. And some of us go to Backstreet Boys concerts. And <laughs> because it speaks to the language of the heart. And like we're drawn to it because it, it touches us. And it gives us language to express the emotions that we don't always have language for. So that we can understand, so we can express, so we can, it's like music, it's almost like a cheat code. It, it goes in behind what we, we, we're normally capable of and it expresses what we are longing. And there's something about poetry and the Psalms that does that, but it expresses it in a way that it brings God and it tries to connect the mundaneness of life and the ordinary and the brokenness of life to the immensity of God and say, you know what, God, you are great. But life sucks. And I, like, I, I'm amazed that some of the Psalms, it's like, man, forgive me for where I've gone wrong. And then the other side, it's like, 
ah, you know how righteous I am before you. And it's like, the two don't make sense, but when you read it, it does. Because it connects with our hearts. Because he's like, God, forgive me for your glory. Forgive me where I've gone wrong. And then once you've forgiven, you're robed in like righteousness. So you can actually say, you know what? I'm righteous before you, God. Would you come through for us? Would you make me more like you so that I can actually testify to those around me, so that I can actually influence those around me, my friends and my family. Give me a new perspective. That you may know the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What are the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? That he worked in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I want you to think about where Jesus is. What would his perspective be? another piece of art from James Tissot the famous like French painter as well he he was famous for for painting with oil paintings but then later in life he got confronted by Jesus and his life turned around and he began painting in almost like in watercolors and did this incredible like just change of perception so in art there were many paintings of the crucifixion but Tissot there's this incredible picture as what Jesus would have seen from the cross. It gives you a completely different perception. You look at this perspective, like instead of seeing like, what does Mona Lisa's perspective, what is Jesus' perspective? And you can see the different responses. I mean, you can go and have a look at your own time. I'm running out of time. The one piece that we've actually got of Jesus is right in the bottom corner here. It's just his feet. I'm just struck by he placed everything under his feet. The reason why Jesus has everything placed under his feet is because he was raised up on the cross. and Like the world was almost under his feet. It's like because he went and he died for us that we can actually live. That's why we have hope. That's why we have a future. That's why we have an inheritance. That's why we have the power. That's why we can look at our situation. Doesn't matter what it looks like. Doesn't matter what we're struggling with. Doesn't matter how the world sees life and the turmoil and the conflict and like the, the division between, I don't know, men and women and husbands and wives and bosses and the employees and this country and that country and what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it. Jesus' perspective, perspective is different. And he wants to give you a heavenly perspective. He wants to lift you up and say, you know what? Your future is secure. Your eternity is secure. The world may be going, I don't know how. But it doesn't matter how the world goes. Everybody's worried. Ah, oh, the country. Ah, oh, load shedding. Ah, oh, ESCOM. It doesn't matter. Because you are secure. The worst thing that the world can do for you is to send you back to Jesus, basically. 
One of my heroes in the faith, Tim Keller, passed away this week. But the first thing that they said was, actually, he has gone home. He is with his Savior. He wasn't sad. He wasn't worried. He wasn't concerned. He was just saying, you know what? If I look at my life with an eternal perspective, I am at peace. I don't have to wrestle. I don't have to struggle. It's actually, I am at peace. I don't have to fight in my marriage because I am at peace. I don't have to fight with my boss because I am at peace. My God holds my future. I don't have to worry about my finances, not because my God holds my future. Two Corinthians four says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let the light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He shone the light of the gospel into our hearts to open the eyes of our hearts, to transform us, to make us ministers of the gospel so we can go out into the world and shine. So we can actually bring light to those who have been blinded, to those who have been veiled. It's like that's who we call to be. We're going to do communion now. put this image back up and just the challenge is just when you when you're faced with challenges in your life and you don't know where to go and you don't know where to turn and you don't know how to fix it and you're longing and you're frustrated and maybe that you are struggling with sickness or disease or finances or loneliness or whatever it is instead of focusing on what we don't have actually change our perception and look at what God has done and try and focus on that and actually say, God, I'm so grateful for what you have done. I place the lamb at the center of my life and I let everything revolve around that. You go from being people that have to eat just bread and water in silence to looking at the wondrous like, celebration and feast that you provide for us, God. You provide wine and life and feasting. That is what you want to give us. So Lord, thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for your sacrifice that transforms our situation. Where we've run out of wine. Where we've run out of what we need. Where we don't have the resources. But actually you've provided everything. For this reason, I pray and I thank you for the faith and the love. I pray that you would give us a hope, that you would show us just the inheritance that's locked up for us, the power to do this.
let us have a vision and an understanding of who Jesus is, of who you are, of what the sacrifice means for us. I pray that you would give us the Spirit, Lord. That your Spirit would fill each and every person here. In Jesus' name. Amen.